O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. That's the opening of our text this morning from Psalm 98. Now I have to admit to you that this scripture troubles me somewhat in what it commands us to do, to sing. Now, while it may come as a surprise to many of you, I'm only an American Idol in my shower when I'm driving around town in my truck, singing by myself out loud and not in front of others. When I'm by myself, you see, I can sing as loud as I want to and as free as I want to, as joyfully as I want to, because there's nobody else listening to me or hearing my performance. Maybe, just maybe, you can relate to me. Now, there's no doubt that God has given the gift of beautiful voices to some. We call them sopranos and altos and tenors and basses and baritones. But unfortunately, God did not gift me with this particular gift. Now, I have to tell you a funny story. When I was a sophomore in high school, one of my good friends and I decided that we would try out for the choral ensemble together. You see, we really weren't so interested in perfecting our voices. We had an ulterior motive here. My girlfriend happened to be in the choral ensemble at the time, and both of us really just wanted to get out of class because they got to leave school all the time to go and perform and sing somewhere. So we decided that we would request an audition. And so we met with the choral director at that time who gathered us around her piano during our lunchtime, and she asked us to begin by singing the scales. Now, I had no idea what she was talking about and had to ask her, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, da. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. And so we did that for her. And then she said, okay, guys, I want you to sing My Country Tis of Thee. And so we did. And after our audition, she turned around and looked with horror at both of us, and she said as nicely as she could, you two look like very athletic guys. I think maybe you should stick to sports. I suppose she thought we were both barely tones. You see, I've been scarred ever since. Yet despite the rejection, despite the many tears she cried while listening to us, I still sing. And even though you won't find me singing with the choir or even singing a solo in a local musical here in town, I still sing. Now, I can follow a tune even if it's not always on tune. But my question is, what about you? You see, I find that music is an integral part of our lives. Music often tells a story. It elicits feelings and emotions and connects us in a way that mere words often can't. And I can honestly say that I've never met a person who doesn't like some form or style of music, but I do know a lot of people who are hesitant to sing out loud around others. Just come to church and you'll find a whole bunch of them sitting around one another. So why is it that I can be singing joyfully and as loudly as I can in the shower or driving around town in my truck, but when I come to worship, I sing joyful, joyful like it's a dirge? You see, it's God who's done marvelous things. The psalmist proclaims this. God is marvelous. Maybe, just maybe, we've forgotten why we should be joyful in the first place. Maybe we've forgotten just how marvelous God is. What marvelous things has God really done? You see, I think to some degree it might benefit us all to look backwards before we can look forwards. 
According to the psalmist, it is God who has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. It is also God who has made known his victory, who has revealed his righteousness in the sight of all of the nations. But the problem that I find is that we get so desensitized to the scriptures that we lose the joy of its message. Here we've just celebrated Christmas together and Advent, and it makes me wonder, shouldn't a teenage virgin pregnant girl surprise us just a little bit? Yet our nativity sets depict a solemn and peaceful birth. But that can't be the truth. How many of you have ever been to a stable before? Animals are not very quiet, are they? And childbirth is far from silent, much less the constant crying from the baby at all hours of the night and during the day to feed him or to change his diaper. As we look back in the Old Testament, I find that we find reasons to be joyful. You see, throughout the scriptures, we find a God who delivers, a God who saves, a God who is victorious in all of life's hopeless situations, even when his people stray away from him. And so what I would like to do this morning is just to take a look back at the Old Testament as a whole and to see if there's not joy to be found. I'll begin when God calls Abram and Sarai to trust him and to leave their homeland that God would show them a new place. And so they're obedient to God and God promises them a child. However, Abraham and Sarah are pretty old and instead of waiting on God, they take matters into their own hands Thus, Hagar and his maidservant gives birth to a son named Ishmael. But this is not the child that God had promised to them. And although Sarah is barren, God works a miracle, and so she gives birth to a son named Isaac. And even though in Sarah's jealousy, Ishmael and Hagar are booted out of the family, God saves them from death. And later on, God asked Abraham to do the very unthinkable and the most unimaginable thing God could ever ask, to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, upon the altar. Abraham, despite torn to do so, is willing, and he almost does it, but God stops him just in time and provides a ram in his place. Joy. Isaac and Rebekah get married, but she's also barren. Yet God performs another miracle, this time twins. Jacob and Esau are born. Joy. Jacob, also known as Israel, had many sons. His youngest son is Joseph the dreamer. And his brothers can't stand him because he's the baby and he boasts that God had given him a dream that one day his brothers would bow down in front of him. So they do what any other brothers would do. They conspire to kill him. But instead of killing him, they turn around and they sell him into slavery in Egypt. And while there, he establishes prominence in Potiphar's court. And later, he's falsely accused of an immoral affair, lands himself on death row, but God gives him the ability to interpret dreams, primarily Pharaoh's dreams. And in doing so, he regains his status. A severe famine strikes the land, but God has given Joseph dreams to prepare Egypt to survive this famine. And lo and behold, Joseph's family travels from Israel to Egypt for refuge. And it's there that he meets his brothers again and he forgives them and he feeds his family, reuniting with his father. Had he not been in a position of power, it's likely that the 12 tribes of Israel 
would have starved to death. Joy. And then following Joseph, Israel was tempted to become a part of Egypt's religion through the enslavement there. And prior to the exodus, the Jews were nearly acculturated into Egyptian cult worship. Then Pharaoh tries to extinguish all the males that were born to keep them enslaved. Now, Pharaoh's daughter discovers one particular baby in a basket of reeds in the Nile River. And so they keep him, and the child grows up as a prince of Egypt. And later on, as he becomes older, he has an identity crisis when he discovers that he's actually a Hebrew. And he accidentally kills an Egyptian for beating one of his own and flees to a land called Midian, seeking refuge and a new life. Moses is his name, and God calls him, this fleeing murderous criminal wanted by Egypt's FBI, out of the land of Midian to lead the Hebrew people out of slavery. And After ten plagues God has provided, Pharaoh finally lets them go. But then he changes his mind again, pursuing them with his army. And it is God who saves the Israelites from Pharaoh's army, parting the Red Sea and helping them cross through dry land and immediately swallowing up the Egyptians who were chasing them. In the midst of God's deliverance and salvation, the Israelites immediately begin to worship foreign objects, forming a golden calf. God is angry and upset with them, but He gives them His law to remind them that they are to worship Him, not because they must, but because of what God has done, that He has saved them and delivered them from slavery and from oppression. Joy. And following Moses' death during the time of Joshua and the judges, the people are often seduced away from God by other false religions. Yet there always seem to be a faithful remnant of faithful followers. But the people complain that they didn't have a king like all the other nations. And so in their eyes, God wasn't good enough to be their king. And despite God warning them through the prophet Samuel that having one would be terrible for them, they still asked for it anyway. So God gave them Saul who started off okay, but quickly turned away and abused his power. And so God sought to remove him, and he sent Samuel to anoint a ruddy shepherd boy by the name of David to replace him. David finally replaces Saul, but also falls away from God. He abuses his power, coveting Bathsheba and allowing lust to get the best of him. And so he has an affair and tries to cover up Bathsheba's pregnancy by summoning her husband to be with her but he refuses because he is serving at a time of war. And so David orders Uriah, her husband, to the front lines, knowing that surely he will be killed and no one would find out. Uriah dies, but God confronts David through the prophet Nathan, letting him know that he cannot run from what he has done. After David's reign, one of his sons, Solomon, takes the throne. And he asks God for wisdom and appears to be the wisest king that ever lived. But he isn't wise enough to flee from the seduction of his concubines and their foreign deities. Thus, after his reign, the kingdom splits in two, with Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Ten tribes to Israel, two to Judah. And this leads us to a time in which the exile of both the people of Israel and Judah takes place at the hands of the Babylonians and the Assyrians. God had sent his prophets to warn the people of their social injustices and their hardness of heart, but they refused to listen. They were exiled to a foreign land. 
But even God couldn't bear to leave them in exile forever. And so in God's perfect timing, he delivers them back to their land, calling people like Ezra and Nehemiah to help them rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Joy. You see, we've just breezed through the Old Testament together, but one thing I find continually stands out. God is faithful to Israel even when Israel is not faithful to God. God saves and God delivers not because of anything they have done to deserve it, but because God is faithful and he loves them with a steadfast love, a love that will not let them go despite their foolishness and their refusal to submit to him. When everything looks bleak and it appears that the lineage of Abraham will eventually end, God is faithful and holds true to his promises even when his people have failed him. So the psalmist, the psalmist reflects with joy and calls us to do so as well. He doesn't command us to sing a quiet song of praise, worrying about our neighbor in the pew sitting in front of us that might hear our off-tune singers. No, he tells us to sing with joy. We are to sing a new song that remembers what God has done in our past, what God is doing in our present, and looking forward to what God will do in our future. This is not a quiet tune. It is a song of salvation, a song of victory, a song of deliverance, that God has saved us not because we've chosen him, but because he has chosen us. So we are compelled and we are commanded to respond with nothing but praise. Now, if you read your Bible, many English translations will translate it, make a joyful noise to the Lord. But the Hebrew text tells us something completely different. It tells us to shout, shout to the Lord with joyful song, as if the battle has already been won, and to shout before the King, the Lord. All of creation is commanded to praise the animals, the sea and all that dwells within it, the floods and even the hills. So today, this first Sunday after Christmas Day, we rejoice. We rejoice because we come to worship the newborn king, the Lord. The God this psalm proclaims is the king who reigns victorious, saves and delivers. And it's the same king who enters this world as an infant Jewish peasant, baby boy, who still reigns victorious, who still saves, and who still delivers. You see, the form that our divine salvation assumed in the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, it's different from the form that God assumed there at Sinai, but I assure you that it's the same God. Jesus' birth is living proof of God's constant steadfast love that God will never stop saving those he loves. You see, just as Pharaoh attempted to kill all of the male children so that the Hebrew people wouldn't revolt against him, so did Herod. He decreed to kill all of the male children to prevent the true king of the Jews from taking his throne. And just as God protected an infant floating down the Nile River to save his people from slavery, so God protected the infant born in Bethlehem so that no human could stop Jesus from being the king of kings and the savior of all. You see, no one can stop God's salvation from taking place. And all throughout the Old Testament, God was saving and delivering his people. But at the same time, he was safeguarding the promised lineage that the Christ child would come from. I find that this is our truest reason to sing a new song. 
Not an old song of complacency in which we as the frozen chosen mumble the words on the page of the hymnal, boring God to tears. Rather, we are to sing a new song of joy that praises the one who is faithful and promises to come again and to judge the people with righteousness and to judge the people with equity. And I find that this song swells up within our hearts because salvation has come to us, casting out our sin and entering into our hearts to make us new creations. And I think it's really important for all of us to know this morning that God is not looking for the next American idol to sing in the heavenly choir. He's not holding auditions, nor will he reject anyone who is willing to to sing. I find that what God is doing is he's looking to see if we really get it, to see if we understand the true meaning of the joy of Christmas, the true meaning of the joy of our salvation in God alone. You see, if the psalmist is right about what he tells us in this psalm, the song that he cries out and that he sings, then I am sure that there's no doubt that even the stable animals who happened to be there on that particular day when the Savior of the world was born right in front of them, that even the animals gave the newborn king appropriate praise, the praise that he deserves. And if creation can cry out with joy, then there's no doubt in my mind that so can we. You see, just a few days ago, we came to the manger singing Silent Night by the stillness of candlelight. What could be more fitting than for us to greet God on this new day, bursting forth in a new song of joy that willingly proclaims God's salvation? Today, as we end our service, we will sing joy to the world. And my prayer for each one of us is that we may truly sing it with joy, believing its message and proclaiming God's unwavering, steadfast love and salvation for all of us. And so today, even though you might be at home and not in the sanctuary, I encourage and pray that you will sing it like you mean it. Sing it like you would maybe in the shower or maybe when you're riding around town all by yourself in the car. Friends, sing it with joy, for we have so much to be joyful for. May it be so this day and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.